Section 10 of Self-Help. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Colleen McMahon. Self-Help with Illustrations of Conduct and Perseverance by Samuel Smiles. Chapter 4. Application and Perseverance, Part 2. The career of the Comte de Buffon presents another remarkable illustration of the power of patient industry, as well as of his own saying that genius is patience. Notwithstanding the great results achieved by him in natural history, Buffon, when a youth, was regarded as of mediocre talents. His mind was slow in forming itself, and slow in reproducing what it had acquired. He was also constitutionally indolent, and being born to good estate, it might be supposed that he would indulge his liking for ease and luxury. Instead of which, he early formed the resolution of denying himself pleasure and devoting himself to study and self-culture, regarding time as a treasure that was limited and finding that he was losing many hours by lying abed in the mornings, he determined to break himself of the habit. He struggled hard against it for some time, but failed in being able to rise at the hour he had fixed. He then called his servant Joseph to his help and promised him the reward of a crown every time that he succeeded in getting him up before six. At first, when called, Buffon declined to rise, pleaded that he was ill or pretended anger at being disturbed, and on the count at length getting up, Joseph found that he had earned nothing but reproaches for having permitted his master to lie abed contrary to his express orders. At length, the valet determined to earn his crown, and again and again he forced Buffon to rise, notwithstanding his entreaties, expostulations, and threats of immediate discharge from his service. One morning, Buffon was unusually obstinate, and Joseph found it necessary to resort to the extreme measure of dashing a basin of ice-cold water under the bedclothes, the effect of which was instantaneous. By the persistent use of such means, Buffon at length conquered his habit and he was accustomed to say that he owed to Joseph three or four volumes of his natural history. For forty years of his life, Buffon worked every morning at his desk from nine till two, and again in the evening from five till nine. His diligence was so continuous and so regular that it became habitual. His biographer has said of him, work was his necessity, his studies were the charm of his life, and towards the last term of his glorious career, he frequently said that he still hoped to be able to consecrate to them a few more years. He was a most conscientious worker, always studying to give the reader his best thoughts, expressed in the very best manner. He was never wearied with touching and retouching his compositions, so that his style may be pronounced almost perfect. He wrote the Epochs de la Nature not fewer than eleven times before he was satisfied with it, although he had thought over the work about fifty years. He was a thorough man of business, most orderly in everything, and he was accustomed to say that genius without order lost three-fourths of its power. His great success as a writer was the result mainly of his painstaking labor and diligent application. Buffon, observed Madame Necker, strongly persuaded that genius is the result of a profound attention directed to a particular subject, said that he was thoroughly wearied out when composing his first writings but compelled himself to return to them and go over them carefully again, even when he thought he had already brought them to a certain degree of perfection, 
and that at length he found pleasure instead of weariness in this long and elaborate correction it ought to be added that buffon wrote and published all his great works while afflicted by one of the most painful diseases to which the human frame is subject literary life affords abundant illustrations of the same power of perseverance and perhaps no career is more instructive viewed in this light than that of sir walter scott his admirable working qualities were trained in a lawyer's office where he pursued for many years a sort of drudgery scarcely above that of a copying clerk his daily dull routine made his evenings which were his own all the more sweet and he generally devoted them to reading and study he himself attributed to his prosaic office discipline that habit of steady sober diligence in which mere literary men are so often found wanting as a copying clerk he was allowed threepence for every page containing a certain number of words and he sometimes by extra work was able to copy as many as one hundred and twenty pages in twenty-four hours thus earning some thirty shillings out of which he would occasionally purchase an odd volume otherwise beyond his means during his after-life scott was wont to pride himself upon being a man of business and he averred in contradiction to what he called the cant of sonneteers that there was no necessary connection between genius and an aversion or contempt for the common duties of life on the contrary he was of opinion that to spend some fair portion of every day in any matter-of-fact occupation was good for the higher faculties themselves in the upshot while afterwards acting as clerk to the court of session in edinburgh he performed his literary work chiefly before breakfast attending the court during the day where he authenticated registered deeds and writings of various kinds on the whole says lockhart it forms one of the most remarkable features in his history that throughout the most active period of his literary career he must have devoted a large proportion of his hours during half at least of every year to the conscientious discharge of professional duties it was a principle of action which he laid down for himself that he must earn his living by business and not by literature on one occasion he said i determined that literature should be my staff not my crutch and that the profits of my literary labor however convenient otherwise should not if i could help it become necessary to my ordinary expenses his punctuality was one of the most carefully cultivated of his habits otherwise it had not been possible for him to get through so enormous an amount of literary labor he made it a rule to answer every letter received by him on the same day except where inquiry and deliberation were requisite nothing else could have enabled him to keep abreast with the flood of communications that poured in upon him and sometimes put his good nature to the severest test it was his practice to rise by five o'clock and light his own fire he shaved and dressed with deliberation and was seated at his desk by six o'clock with his papers arranged before him in the most accurate order his works of reference marshalled round him on the floor while at least one favourite dog lay watching his eye outside the line of books thus by the time the family assembled for breakfast between nine and ten he had done enough to use his own words to break the neck of the day's work but with all his diligent and indefatigable industry and his immense knowledge the result of many years patient labor scott always spoke with the greatest diffidence of his own powers on one occasion he said throughout every part of my career i have felt pinched and hampered by my own ignorance such is true wisdom and humility for the more a man really knows the less conceited he will be the student at trinity college 
who went up to his professor to take leave of him because he had finished his education, was wisely rebuked by the professor's reply, Indeed, I am only beginning mine. The superficial person who has obtained a smattering of many things, but knows nothing well, may pride himself upon his gifts. But the sage humbly confesses that all he knows is that he knows nothing, or, like Newton, that he has been only engaged in picking shells by the seashore, while the great ocean of truth lies all unexplored before him. The lives of second-rate literary men furnish equally remarkable illustrations of the power of perseverance. The late John Britton, author of The Beauties of England and Wales, and of many valuable architectural works, was born in a miserable cot in Kingston, Wiltshire. His father had been a baker and maltster, but was ruined in trade and became insane while Britton was yet a child. The boy received very little schooling, but a great deal of bad example, which happily did not corrupt him. He was early in life set to labor with an uncle, a tavern keeper in Clerkenwell, under whom he bottled, corked, and binned wine for more than five years. His health failing him, his uncle turned him adrift in the world with only two guineas, the fruits of his five years' service, in his pocket. During the next seven years of his life, he endured many vicissitudes and hardships. Yet he says in his autobiography, In my poor and obscure lodgings, at eighteen pence a week, I indulged in study and often read in bed during the winter evenings because I could not afford a fire. Traveling on foot to Bath, he there obtained an engagement as a cellarman, but shortly after we find him back in the metropolis again, almost penniless, shoeless, and shirtless. He succeeded, however, in obtaining employment as a cellarman at the London Tavern, where it was his duty to be in the cellar from seven in the morning until eleven at night. His health broke down under this confinement in the dark, added to the heavy work, and he then engaged himself at fifteen shillings a week to an attorney, for he had been diligently cultivating the art of writing during the few spare minutes that he could call his own, while in this employment he devoted his leisure principally to perambulating the bookstalls, where he read books by snatches which he could not buy, and thus picked up a good deal of odd knowledge. Then he shifted to another office, at the advanced wages of twenty shillings a week, still reading and studying. At twenty-eight he was able to write a book, which he published under the title of The Enterprising Adventures of Pizarro, and from that time until his death, during a period of about fifty-five years, Britain was occupied in laborious literary occupation. The number of his published works is not fewer than eighty-seven, the most important being The Cathedral Antiquities of England in fourteen volumes, a truly magnificent work itself the best monument of John Britton's indefatigable industry. London, the landscape gardener, was a man of somewhat similar character, possessed of an extraordinary working power. The son of a farmer near Edinburgh, he was early inured to work. His skill in drawing plans and making sketches of scenery induced his father to train him for a landscape gardener. During his apprenticeship, he sat up two whole nights every week to study, Yet he worked harder during the day than any laborer. In the course of his night studies he learnt French, and before he was eighteen he translated a life of Abelard for an encyclopedia. He was so eager to make progress in life that when only twenty, while working as a gardener in England, he wrote down in his notebook, I am now twenty years of age, and perhaps a third part of my life has passed away, and yet what have I done to benefit my fellow man? An unusual reflection for a youth of only twenty. From French he proceeded to learn German, and rapidly mastered that language. 
having taken a large farm for the purpose of introducing scotch improvements in the art of agriculture he shortly succeeded in realizing a considerable income the continent being thrown open at the end of the war he travelled abroad for the purpose of inquiring into the system of gardening and agriculture in other countries he twice repeated his journeys and the results were published in his encyclopedias which are among the most remarkable works of their kind distinguished for the immense mass of useful matter which they contain collected by an amount of industry and labor that has rarely been equalled the career of samuel drew is not less remarkable than any of those which we have cited his father was a hard-working laborer of the parish of st austell in cornwall though poor he contrived to send his two sons to a penny-a-week school in the neighborhood jabez the elder took delight in learning and made great progress in his lessons but samuel the younger was a dunce notoriously given to mischief and playing truant when about eight years old he was put to manual labor earning three halfpence a day as a buttle boy at a tin mine at ten he was apprenticed to a shoemaker and while in this employment he endured much hardship living as he used to say like a toad under a harrow he often thought of running away and becoming a pirate or something of the sort and he seems to have grown in recklessness as he grew in years in robbing orchards he was usually a leader and as he grew older he delighted to take part in any poaching or smuggling adventure when about seventeen before his apprenticeship was out he ran away intending to enter on board a man-of-war but sleeping in a hayfield at night cooled him a little and he returned to his trade drew next removed to the neighborhood of plymouth to work at his shoemaking business and while at cause end he won a prize for cudgel playing in which he seems to have been an adept while living there he had nearly lost his life in a smuggling exploit which he had joined partly induced by the love of adventure and partly by the love of gain for his regular wages were not more than eight shillings a week one night notice was given throughout craft hall that a smuggler was off the coast ready to land her cargo on which the male population of the place nearly all smugglers made for the shore one party remained on the rocks to make signals and dispose of the goods as they were landed and another manned the boats drew being of the latter party the night was intensely dark and very little of the cargo had been landed when the wind rose with a heavy sea the men in the boats however determined to persevere and several trips were made between the smuggler now standing farther out to sea and the shore one of the men in the boat in which drew was had his hat blown off by the wind and in attempting to recover it the boat was upset three of the men were immediately drowned the others clung to the boat for a time but finding it drifting out to sea they took to swimming they were two miles from land and the night was intensely dark after being about three hours in the water drew reached a rock near the shore with one or two others where he remained benumbed with cold till morning when he and his companions were discovered and taken off more dead than alive a keg of brandy from the cargo just landed was brought the head knocked in with a hatchet and a bowlful of the liquid presented to the survivors and shortly after drew was able to walk two miles through deep snow to his lodgings this was a very unpromising beginning of a life and yet this same drew scrapegrace orchard robber shoemaker cudgel player and smuggler outlived the recklessness of his youth and became distinguished as a minister of the gospel and a writer of good books happily before it was too late the energy which characterized him was turned into a more healthy direction and rendered him as eminent in usefulness as he had been before in wickedness his father again took him back to st austell and found employment for him as a journeyman shoemaker 
perhaps his recent escape from death had tended to make the young man serious as we shortly find him attracted by the forcible preaching of dr adam clark a minister of the wesleyan methodists his brother having died about the same time the impression of seriousness was deepened and thenceforward he was an altered man he began anew the work of education for he had almost forgotten how to read and write and even after several years practice a friend compared his writing to the traces of a spider dipped in ink set to crawl upon paper speaking of himself about that time drew afterwards said the more i read the more i felt my own ignorance and the more i felt my ignorance the more invincible became my energy to surmount it every leisure moment was now employed in reading one thing or another having to support myself by manual labor my time for reading was but little and to overcome this disadvantage my usual method was to place a book before me while at meat and at every repast i read five or six pages the perusal of locke's essay on the understanding gave the first metaphysical turn to his mind it awakened me from my stupor said he and induced me to form a resolution to abandon the grovelling views which i had been accustomed to entertain drew began business on his own account with a capital of a few shillings but his character for steadiness was such that a neighbouring miller offered him a loan which was accepted and success attending his industry the debt was repaid at the end of a year he started with the determination to owe no man anything and he held to it in the midst of many privations often he went to bed supperless to avoid rising in debt his ambition was to achieve independence by industry and economy and in this he gradually succeeded in the midst of incessant labor he sedulously strove to improve his mind studying astronomy history and metaphysics he was induced to pursue the latter study chiefly because it required fewer books to consult than either of the others it appeared to be a thorny path he said but i determined nevertheless to enter and accordingly began to tread it added to his labors in shoemaking and metaphysics drew became a local preacher and a class leader he took an eager interest in politics and his shop became a favorite resort with the village politicians and when they did not come to him he went to them to talk over public affairs this so encroached upon his time that he found it necessary sometimes to work until midnight to make up for the hours lost during the day his political fervor became the talk of the village while busy one night hammering away at a shoe sole a little boy seeing a light in the shop put his mouth to the keyhole of the door and called out in a shrill pipe shoemaker shoemaker work by night and run about by day a friend to whom drew afterwards told the story asked and did not you run after the boy and strap him no no was the reply had a pistol been fired off at my ear i could not have been more dismayed or confounded i dropped my work and said to myself true true but you shall never have that to say of me again to me that cry was as the voice of god and it has been a word in season throughout my life i learnt from it not to leave till tomorrow the work of today or to idle when i ought to be working from that moment drew dropped politics and stuck to his work reading and studying in his spare hours but he never allowed the latter pursuit to interfere with his business though it frequently broke in upon his rest he married and thought of emigrating to america but he remained working on his literary taste first took the direction of poetical composition and from some of the fragments which have been preserved it appears that his speculations as to the immateriality and immortality of the soul had their origin in these poetical musings 
His study was the kitchen, where his wife's bellows served him for a desk, and he wrote amidst the cries and cradlings of his children. Payne's age of reason having appeared about this time and excited much interest, he composed a pamphlet in refutation of its arguments, which was published. He used afterwards to say that it was the age of reason that made him an author. Various pamphlets from his pen shortly appeared in rapid succession, and a few years later, while still working at shoemaking, he wrote and published his admirable Essay on the Immateriality and Immortality of the Human Soul, which he sold for twenty pounds, a great sum in his estimation at the time. The book went through many editions and is still prized. Drew was in no wise puffed up by his success, as many young authors are, but long after he had become celebrated as a writer, used to be seen sweeping the street before his door, or helping his apprentices to carry in the winter's coals. Nor could he, for some time, bring himself to regard literature as a profession to live by. His first care was to secure an honest livelihood by his business, and to put into the lottery of literary success, as he termed it, only the surplus of his time. At length, however, he devoted himself wholly to literature, more particularly in connection with the Wesleyan body, editing one of their magazines and superintending the publication of several of their denominational works. He also wrote in the Eclectic Review and compiled and published a valuable history of his native county Cornwall, with numerous other works. Towards the close of his career, he said of himself, Raised from one of the lowest stations in society, I have endeavored through life to bring my family into a state of respectability, by honest industry, frugality, and a high regard for my moral character. Divine providence has smiled on my exertions and crowned my wishes with success. The late Joseph Hume pursued a very different career, but worked in an equally persevering spirit. He was a man of moderate parts, but of great industry and unimpeachable honesty of purpose. The motto of his life was perseverance, and well he acted up to it. His father dying while he was a mere child, his mother opened a small shop in Montrose and toiled hard to maintain her family and bring them up respectably. Joseph, she put apprentice to a surgeon and educated for the medical profession. Having got his diploma, he made several voyages to India as ship's surgeon. Footnote. It was characteristic of Mr. Hume that during his professional voyages between England and India, he should diligently apply his spare time to the study of navigation and seamanship, and many years after it proved of use to him in a remarkable manner. In 1825, when on his passage from London to Leith by a sailing smack, the vessel had scarcely cleared the mouth of the Thames when a sudden storm came on. She was driven out of her course, and in the darkness of the night she struck on the Goodwin Sands. The captain, losing his presence of mind, seemed incapable of giving coherent orders, and it is probable that the vessel would have become a total wreck had not one of the passengers suddenly taken command and directed the working of the ship, himself taking the helm while the danger lasted. The vessel was saved, and the stranger was Mr. Hume. End of footnote. And afterwards obtained a cadetship in the company's service. None worked harder or lived more temperately than he did, and securing the confidence of his superiors, who found him a capable man in the performance of his duty, they gradually promoted him to higher offices. In 1803, he was with the division of the army under General Powell in the Mahratta War, and the interpreter having died, Hume, who had meanwhile studied and mastered the native languages, was appointed in his stead. He was next made chief of the medical staff. But as if this were not enough to occupy his full working power, 
he undertook in addition the offices of paymaster and postmaster and filled them satisfactorily he also contracted to supply the commissariat which he did with advantage to the army and profit to himself after about ten years unremitting labor he returned to england with a competency and one of his first acts was to make provision for the poorer members of his family but joseph hume was not a man to enjoy the fruits of his industry in idleness work and occupation had become necessary for his comfort and happiness to make himself fully acquainted with the actual state of his own country and the condition of the people he visited every town in the kingdom which then enjoyed any degree of manufacturing celebrity he afterwards travelled abroad for the purpose of obtaining a knowledge of foreign states returned to england he entered parliament in eighteen twelve and continued a member of that assembly with a short interruption for a period of about thirty-four years his first recorded speech was on the subject of public education and throughout his long and honorable career he took an active and earnest interest in that and all other questions calculated to elevate and improve the condition of the people criminal reform savings banks free trade economy and retrenchment extended representation and such like measures all of which he indefatigably promoted whatever subject he undertook he worked at with all his might he was not a good speaker but what he said was believed to proceed from the lips of an honest single-minded accurate man if ridicule as shaftesbury says be the test of truth joseph hume stood the test well no man was more laughed at but there he stood perpetually and literally at his post he was usually beaten on a division but the influence which he exercised was nevertheless felt and many important financial improvements were effected by him even with the vote directly against him the amount of hard work which he contrived to get through was something extraordinary he rose at six wrote letters and arranged his papers for parliament then after breakfast he received persons on business sometimes as many as twenty in a morning the house rarely assembled without him and though the debate might be prolonged to two or three o'clock in the morning his name was seldom found absent from the division in short to perform the work which he did extending over so long a period in the face of so many administrations week after week year after year to be outvoted beaten laughed at standing on many occasions almost alone to persevere in the face of every discouragement preserving his temper unruffled never relaxing in his energy or his hope and living to see the greater number of his measures adopted with acclamation must be regarded as one of the most remarkable illustrations of the power of human perseverance that biography can exhibit. End of section 10. Recording by Colleen McMahon.